is in love with Jesus Christ. He's been saved by Christ. He is a preacher of the gospel, which is free life through the work and the bloodshed and the resurrection of the living God who became a man for us, Jesus. And so he, he, he comes up the gate in every single letter, in various forms, preaching the gospel. Free life through the work and the blood and the resurrection and the current life of Jesus Christ. If the, so he starts off every book with what theologians call an indicative, which is it's just a statement with a period at the end. It's an affirmation or an assertion. It's a fact. So Christ died for you. Believe in him and you shall be saved, period. Nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. You're all wicked and dead in your sins. He loved you so much that he took your place on the cross. That's the gospel. And he's now alive in power. Come alive in him. Believe in him. Trust in him. At the end, so that's the, that's the uh, indicative that he always starts his letters with. It's just a fact. It's a fact of the gospel. But he always moves into and finishes his letters with um, exhortations, with commands, with the imperative. If he starts with the indicative, he finishes with the imperative, which is a command. So in light of what Christ has done and who you are in him freely, you've been saved through no good of your own church. Therefore, your life ought to look this way. Live this way. Strive in this way. Um, not work to, to earn salvation, but because you have been saved, live this way. Let that salvation flow out of you. So that's, that's where we are now. That's why we have a bunch of commands starting in Colossians 3.8. In light of what Christ has done, as, as I've been saying for the past two chapters, Paul says, your, uh, your lives and your relationships ought to look this way. And that's what this text is about. Um, Christ uh, calling us to himself and winning us for himself transforms and changes our relationships, all of our relationships in their multiplicity. So it often looks at first repressive in some of the ways that Paul outlines it. It calls for submission, not to be harsh. Children, obey your parents and everything. And we'll get to all these. Slaves, obey your masters. It seems backward and repressive, but actually these are all revolutionary in their outworking. So I want to I look at that briefly. And lastly, before we jump into the first point, the, Paul's command to wives in light of what Christ has done, I just want to say it's, it's a bunch of points this morning, but we're going to go rapid fire through them. The first one's the longest, so, so hang with me. Um, the first thing in 3.18, Paul just says simply, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So point one, um, calling Christ Lord, and all these points are calling Christ Lord. If you don't get this by point five or six, then you've been somewhere else. Calling Christ Lord looks like a submissive wife. If you're a wife and you call Christ Lord, what Paul says is, I want you to submit to your husbands. So it seems repressive at first. It seems backward. It seems offensive. I thought we'd move past this in our society. This looks dated like a dinosaur of a command. What's the deal? Um, but let's just press pause if we're thinking in those ways and consider what he's saying. Consider some things before we jump there. Um, elsewhere, so let's look at the rest of Scripture. All of Scripture coheres. It interprets itself. Elsewhere, the Bible is very clear that men and women are equal in dignity and equal in worth. In Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, the fundamental stuff you're supposed to know. God creates all things, and at the end of his creation, the cherry on the top of his creation Sunday, he makes us. He makes man and woman, and we alone, he creates. He creates in his image. Not the angels, not the worms, not trees, not 
dogs and cats, not the seas, not the oceans. We are the ones that he makes in his image, Imago Dei. And that dignifies us in a way that nothing else can. It sets us apart from everything else. And when he creates us, he doesn't just make man. In Genesis 1, we, it shows us he confers within the council of his trinity. He says, let us, ah, let us make man in our image. And then it says, the next verse, so he made them, man and woman, in his image, together. And so there's a sense in which man and woman together image the, multi, the God of multi-personality, the triune God in a way that we can't alone. A man can't alone and a woman can't alone, okay? There's this union between a man and a woman that is so special. And in the second sort of lens that we're given of creation in Genesis chapter 2, not contradictory but complementary, um, God makes man and there's sort of like a time lag and then, it, and then he kind of has Adam sort of scratch his head and go, Okay, do you think that everything I've made is good? Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's all good, it's all good. We've heard it's good, it's good. And then he gets, and then, and then he can't find a partner for himself that's equal to him. And for the first time in the Hebrew Bible, it says startlingly, if you've been reading slowly, it says, it's not good. It's the first time it appears. It's not, there's this not good in the middle of God's perfect creation. It's not good for man to be alone. So he makes a woman as a compliment. So man, so woman in the scriptures, Galatians 3.28, Paul says this in another letter to the church at Galatia. Um, females are equal in worth and dignity. They complement men in a beautiful way that images God himself. So this, this kind of dignifying of women is all throughout the scriptures, and it was completely revolutionary for its time. There was no other ancient Near Eastern document or religion that exalted women to this status. So right away, we know, we know Paul's not tramping with the boot down on women when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Um, secondly, God is actually, and this might be even more encouraging, God within his trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, is actually submissive within his trinity to himself. So the, the Son submits himself to the Father. It, he clearly is equal to the Father. He says, I and the Father are one, and I believe it's John 14. And um, he says to Philip in John 14, uh, if you have seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. But also he says the Father is greater than I in other places. Talking about the sort of what theologians call the, the economy of the Trinity, the economic nature, how the Trinity works within itself. The Father is all, the Son is always deferring to the Father, the Spirit to the Son and the Father. There's this inner deferential nature where one is always serving the other, and that's what love is. It's laying itself down constantly. God is constantly within his own counsels and personhood laying himself down for the other. That's why there's fullness and this explosion of life, life itself within God, and that's what he calls us to. So God himself is actually submissive to himself. Here, there's a commentator that says, if the Son is simultaneously equal with the Father, which he is, and submissive to the Father, then equality and submissiveness can coexist also in human relationships. And also, elsewhere, thirdly, the Bible commands us to submit to one another, doesn't it? So this isn't giving men some sort of social or relational upper hand. And it actually makes a lot of sense because in society, without submission in different levels of society, things don't work. Things break down. So when you look at uh, both men and women as citizens, um, some men and women as soldiers, look at young people, um, workers and their wives, you look at children and their parents, which he gets to in a bit, 
look at the military. There's, if there's no submission, like in a company, for instance, um, things just break down. They don't work. Um, one, one commentator says, it implies that God has so providentially ordered human affairs that a measure of authority must needs be exercised and recognized if human society is to hold together. So again, think about your company with no submission to authority. Think about a family with children with no submission to it. Think about a classroom. Maybe you, some of you are teachers. I know some of you are teachers, but think about it. You might have seen a classroom with no submission to authority. It's a, it's a disaster. It's chaos. There, there is submission to authority, again, within the thing that is most fundamental in the universe, which is God. He's uncreated. Within the fabric of the uncreated, there is this constitution of submission. So there's a, sub, a subordinationism woven into the fabric of the universe. It is how things work. There is a hierarchy. And so Paul is letting us into that here with his command to wives. Um, so to announce that the modern mind, I'm quoting here, cannot accept this, is, it's unhelpful and it's misleading since it's evident that sinful human nature is never liked, it's, has just never liked this command. It's not we moderns or postmoderns who are the first to chafe at it. Um, I just want to brag on Rob's for a sec. My wife, I don't bring her up a lot, and I probably bring my kids up more, but every once in a while she pops in. Um, and let me tell you, I mean, one good way to help me work through this was just to think about her. Um, when she's, She is just so, like, when I read this, it's easy for me because I know what healthy submission looks like. My wife, it's, it's, she's such a blessing to me in that sense. Um, when she submits to me, especially when she doesn't want to, which I know that's never happened. Um, it, I'm telling you truly, it makes me want to listen to her. It makes me want to defer to her. It makes me want to submit to her. It makes me want to hear her out. Um, it's crazy why that happens, and I'm not sure, other than to say it's how God designed it. Her power, this is not why she submits, but God designed it so that the power of a wife, the power of a woman, especially in a, in a husband and wife relationship, her power is in submission to me. It does something to me. It moves me in a way nothing else can. Um, and I know those words might grate. I know that word submit to a wife can grate, but they're true. Think about the way that life is born. Uh, man cannot, men cannot bear children. I know that uh, sometimes I say profound things from, from this pulpit, uh, maybe. That was probably not one of the more profound things, okay? Men cannot have babies. Um, the movie Junior with Arnold Schwarzenegger is, 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 is a fiction. Um, <laughs> thank God. Only women can have children. Um, how? Submission to the man, to the husband. If there is no submission, in other words, there's no life. There's no life. Um, and that is power. That is where life comes from. So actually, this speaks to the liberation of women that Christ brings. Because again, we're reading this in context. He doesn't just start off the letter by saying, wives, submit. He starts it off with the gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't he? So this commentator says, just as striking is the indication that in their respective sections, women and slaves are first addressed. He gets to slaves in a bit. And that with urgency, just because the gospel has already brought them a unique measure of liberation. It's imperative. So elsewhere in this section, in 3.11, in this letter, Paul, I mean, last week we preached on it. Last, um, Paul says in, in Colossians 3, verse 11, he says, there's no longer Greek or Jew, 
There's no longer uh, barbarian or or slave or free. And in Ephesians, he says there's no longer male or female, but all are one in Christ. Okay? So he reiterates the equality that we have in Christ Jesus and what he's done for us. It's imperative that this wonderful new spiritual freedom should not be misused to the scandalizing of their society and the detriment of the gospel witness. He's speaking to women. It's precisely because in Christ, the Christian wife has, wife has been set free from the age-old downgrading of her kind in pagan societies. Now to enjoy equality with her husband as, quote, joint heirs of the grace of life, as Paul says, that she must take special care in her behavior not to cause unnecessary and harmful reactions among her non-Christian neighbors. Um, but look at how verse 18 ends. He doesn't just say, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Briefly, two ways to read this. So submit to your husbands with caveat, as is fitting in the Lord. What does that mean? First of all, it's fitting within the economy of God's family to live this way. It's a sign of your love for Christ when you submit to your husband. It's a sign of your submission to Christ first when you submit to your husband, wives. Um, all this is not to say that the woman will always find the sacrificial giving of herself and loyalty to another con- congenial, a commentator says. Um, but the fact is that a Christian woman's relation to her husband is that it mirrors her commitment to the Lord. In this concept, there's no possibility of a married woman's surrender to a heavenly Christ, which is not made visible and actual by some submission to an earthly husband. So in other words, again, because of what Christ has done, indicative, our relationships will be changed. They will look a certain way. And this is one of the ways that wives manifest that they get the gospel, that it has gripped their hearts and their minds, that it is changing them. We're never going to see perfect submission or perfect love or perfect gentleness or a total lack of harshness this side of heaven. But this is what Paul commands us to and causes us to lean into because of what Christ has done for us and exampled for us and put into us, his, his very spirit. Secondly, though, as wives submit as, as is fitting in the Lord, wives this is a caveat. This is a condition, maybe. Your call is to submit to your husband only in ways that are fitting or appropriate the Lord in Christ Jesus. That is, in ways that complement your dignity and worth as an image bearer and an heir of God in Christ. In other words, you're not, you're not called to endure physical abuse. Paul's not calling women, wives, to endure physical abuse or never to speak up, never to challenge. It's not what he's saying but you are called to defer to your husband and to respect him. Sometimes it's going to look like speaking up, challenging your husband, confronting him, doing so in a respectful way, or sometimes it's going to look like breaking China. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. You've maybe heard it if you've listened to Tim Keller, but he mentions it in almost every book and in lots of sermons that he preaches. They had this, Tim Keller is a preacher in New York, and he and his wife had this seminal moment where she calls it like the, I think he calls it like the great, the great China breaking incident, you know, and it was years and years ago, but he was basically just overworking as he planted this church in Manhattan, and she, they had talked about the fact that that time that they had agreed that he was going to overwork was finished, and um, he had kind of overstayed his lease, as it were, on that, and so he came home one day and heard the sound of breaking, of shattering, and he went out on their patio, and they, um, she was just breaking, she was breaking plates with a hammer of their china plates. And he, 
you know, you, okay, whoa, 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 you know, she was literally on the edge. And so she just was getting his attention. And so they had a conversation and um, it really, it really took effect. But later she says, it was actually three chipped pieces of China that I was going to get rid of anyway. And so she was biding her time and planning. So wives, be crafty. Um, and be wise in your use of, of, of the China-breaking incidents, but sometimes you've got to pull that out to get a hold of your stubborn husband. I know I can never be stubborn, but if I ever am. Um, and I want to I read this as we transition to point two, which is much briefer. Um, alas, from a commentator, alas, many husbands do little to deserve the loyalty of a true wife, but Paul has an equally revolutionary word for them. So the second point is calling Christ Lord. First point is calling Christ Lord looks like being a submissive wife, as is fitting in the Lord. The second point is this. Christ Lord looks like being a loving husband, 319. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Here is some distinctively Christian teaching to be sure. The Hellenistic world may have known such terms as to love, but it did not include them in its rules for the household. And how characteristic of the New Testament to command this. Um, Paul devotes a whole chapter to it, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13. So this is Paul's command to husbands. This ought to characterize the way that you treat your wives. Love them. If you don't do anything else, love them. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. Um, and one thing that all the commentators say is that you can't, and, and hey, you just, you're not supposed to read books pieces of, of, of literature out of context. Certainly, you're not supposed to read Paul's letters out of context. He doesn't just say, wives, submit. He says it in the context of the gospel, and then he says, and the next thing he says, he pairs it with is, husbands, love your wives. Um, and it is hard for a wife to submit to a husband who's not loving. And it can be hard for a husband to love a wife who is not submitting. These two things work in tandem, and, and doing one makes the other easier. They work well together, and they also work against each other if they're not obeyed. At some point, being realistic, someone has to die. Knowing that Christ has died for you and called you to die to your own desires and self, someone at various points in the marriage has to, has to lay down and be the leader, and that's on the men. It is on the men. I'm not encouraging wives not to lay down either and submit, but I am saying it is in the end when we stand before God, we will be responsible for the sanctification of our wives and for how they turned out in a large, in large measure. Husbands, I truly believe it. We are the leaders in the relationship, and that doesn't mean trouncing on. That doesn't mean commanding to submit. If you're having to do that, you've lost. You're not loving well. You're not honoring um, how natural, one man says, how natural to love a loyal wife. And who would not want to remain loyal to a truly loving husband? So that's, that's to husbands. There's a lot more to say on each of these, but I'll move on. Point three, calling Christ looks like being an obedient child. If you look at 3 verse 20, it looks like being an obedient child. What does Paul say here? Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. In everything? Look, Paul often will make a statement like this, and he'll, le he'll leave off qualifications and caveats to make the point. Okay, It's not that there aren't exceptions. Like in Romans chapter 13, in verse 1, he says, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. He, there are no qualifications, but 
sort of in the way that he goes on in describing the sort of government that he's talking about, doing justice, things like that, um, there, there are some things that you can read into it. If it's an evil government, if you're under Hitler's Third Reich and they call you to kill Jews, you're not going to submit to that. Because, because to do so would be to dishonor God and to clearly break his commands. So, so it is here, but what we can do is we can so focus on the caveats and the exceptions that we miss, we throw out the baby with the bathwater, we miss the fact that Paul is saying here, children, obey your parents and everything. Um, surely God wouldn't want children displeasing or disobeying him at the command of his parents, but that's, those are exceptions. Let's not jump to those. Few commands that Paul gives could be, have more pervasive and sound scriptural support than this one. There's uh, the Ten Commandments that feature all throughout the Old Testament, but they're sort of the, the basis uh, for the law and the law on which all other, the law, all, um, other laws hang in the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's Ten Commands. It's called the Decalogue by some. Big fancy word. It's basically broken down into two tables. The Ten Commands, the first of the tables, and Zach mentioned this earlier, the first of the tables is vertical stuff. The first four commands are ways that we ought to worship God, love God, honor God, obey God. The second table, the last four of the Ten Commands are, vert, are horizontal. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't steal, don't bear false witness. They're with each other. So that says something right there. Until we get vertical, horizontal's no good. You've got to get your priorities right. Get right with God, worship Him, and then this stuff's going to get right. And that's important too. But my point is that the two tables are joined by the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. As Paul says, it's the first command with a promise. What's happening here? What's happening here is at first blush, it seems like it's just a horizontal command, but actually its position and its wording help us see that this fifth command for children to honor, and Paul says here, obey your parents in everything is the thing that connects. It's a bridge between the two tables of the Decalogue. It connects all the vertical commands to God and all the horizontal commands with, with each other. Because when children learn to obey and honor their parents, they most likely will grow up to be God-fearers. If they do not, if they are spoiled and... and um, grow up disobedient in the whole, it is very, very, very difficult and certainly miraculous, as it is in every case, of course, when someone is saved, but very difficult to see that child grow up to be a God-fear. Um, heaven and earth must be moved for that to happen. So it's so, so important. Um, in the Bible stories, spoilt children rarely learn to serve God. There are some exceptions, thank God, but as a rule, the way that the fabric of the universe works. It's so, so important. Um, parents, discipline your children. Don't count to three. I have one of my friends, one of my good friends on um, our block does that. And at some point, once we have enough relational, once our relational bridge is strong enough for me to put some weight on it, <laughs> I'm going to be like, hey, bro, um, you might not want to count so much. Because what does that, I mean, teach your kids like, okay, one, I mean, if I'm a kid, I'm just, I'm waiting till two and a half before I ever, you know, obey at all. Like that's, don't do that. Um, 
Don't count to three. Don't, don't threaten and then do nothing. In fact, don't threaten. Just deliver loving, steady discipline. Always do it in love. Always do it free from anger. If you're so mad at your kid and they need discipline, hand it off or wait. But if they're really young, sometimes you can't wait. So better not to do anything for the time than to, than to discipline in anger. But we must discipline our children in love. Um, for them to grow up to obey us in everything. Um, I think we are such a society of just kind of laissez-faire parenting, and that's a disaster. Um, we must discipline gently, though, in love. And this is a word that especially Paul thinks fathers need to hear. Because look at point four. Calling Christ Lord looks like being, what? Verse 21, a gentle father. It looks like calling Christ Lord looks like being a gentle father. What does he say? Father. Don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's interesting that there's no advice to moms in this litany. There's no advice to moms. Fathers are, are more prone to harshness or to strict exaction, which will, Paul says, it'll discourage your kids. I know it's the case with me. I know it's the case with me. Um, one commentator says, fathers are more likely to be the cause of problem children. Fathers? a big word, and it's true. This is a call. This command is a call to fathers, and I'm calling out right now to fathers. And it's such a perfect Sunday in God's providence, the way he arranged it with this dedication Sunday. It's so perfect. Um, your role is the most important role to the children in the family. I'm not discounting the role of mothers. There's, nobody can do what a mom does. Nobody's love is like a mother's love. I'm not discounting, but I am saying I am driving down a stake right here, and I'm saying, fathers, you have a crucial role, and I think the most important role in the family. You image God, let me say this, in a way nobody else can. Um, God is, is a father. He's not a mother. Nowhere is he described as a mother. He's described as a mother. He has characteristic of a mother because he draw, Jesus wanted to draw the Israelites to himself as a hen gathers her chicks. Um, elsewhere, he, he's described as a mother to her children, but God is actually not called a mother. He is a father, existentially. Um, he is a father. And so we image God, fathers, in a way that nobody else can, and there's power in that. Um, mothers get all their good characteristics from God, but God is not a mother. He's a father, and he is love. Um, fathers, your children will see God first, and they will see God best or worst through the prism of your person. Um, if this church becomes a church filled with gentle fathers and loving husbands, it will be a healthy church because of what Christ is doing in your hearts to make you such. It will be, this is, this is the pull and the influence that fathers have. Um, also, children look to fathers first and most for their grounding and their identity. If the father is hard on them, unloving, grating, exacting, performance-based in his love and affection, it's going to devastate, maybe even ruin a child. But the converse is also true. C.S. Lewis said of his sort of literary spiritual mentor, whom he never met, George MacDonald, he said the key to the way that he saw God the Father in a, such a healthy and wonderful way was he, he had an almost perfect relationship with his, with his, heavenly, with his uh, earthly father. Excuse me. Um, conversely, Ed Turner 
said, the great magnate, he said, all I ever did, I did because I wanted my father. This is not a direct quote, by the way, but I remember him saying something like this. All that I ever did, I did because I wanted my father to be proud of me. Every company I built, all the money I made, everything. I wanted him to approve. And I don't know that he ever got that approval. I don't think he did. Um, we're all looking for that well done from our father. And I just want to say, if you didn't get that, it is what Jesus Christ brings us into. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of the father, who bore the father's wrath and great displeasure in our place. As we trust in him, he brings us into a relationship where the father looks at us and is well pleased and loves us. We don't have to do anything to be loved, but to look to Christ and to trust in him and to hide in him. And we gain all the approval that the Father has for the Son. We gain all that. That is our inheritance. And that becomes our identity. Which is why we did what we did this morning as a family. We are made family through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And it's why Paul can speak this way. Because of that fact. Um, you know, I have a, I have a gentle praising my family here. It's a good, a good chance to do that. I, I, have a, I have a gentle father. And that's truly, I can say, my dad, as a gentle, loving father, that's one of the greatest blessings of my life, that I had a gentle, non, not harsh, not impatient. I'm a much more impatient father than my dad was. Um, and I bless, I bless my father for that. It goes a long way, Dad. It goes a long way. Um, So this command, again, revolutionary, right? By Paul, two fathers. It's a huge contrast with ancient and classical culture. Nowhere does Paul tell us of the father's power here. Nowhere here does Paul tell us of the father's power over the children or his duty to discipline them, although he does elsewhere. But not here. What does he focus on here? Love, love them and don't provoke them. Love your wives, rather, and don't provoke your children. Be gentle with them. Don't discourage them. Um, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 6.4. It says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, show me a husband who loves his wife and is harsh neither with her nor his children, and I will show you a happy home. And if we become increasingly a people filled with fathers and husbands like that, we will be on our way to being a healthy church because that's the power that Christ gives us. And the converse is also true. And if you look at the larger structure here, he starts with wives in 3.18 with this relationship command. With these, I was going to say advice, but these, these relational commands, how Christ transforms our relationships. He starts with wives, then he moves to men or husbands. Then he goes to children, that's the bullseye. Then he goes back to, to men as fathers, not as husbands and then to servants and masters. So men are mentioned twice. They're like the, the meat in the sandwich here of this sort of chiasm, this literary arrangement. And they, they cloak the children on either side. Um, men of God, subject to Christ and happy in him. Men as loving husbands first and gentle fathers next. Actually, men as humble sons of the Father God first, then as loving husbands, and then as gentle fathers are the foundation of a stable and healthy society. 
Um, we don't have a time left, so I need to be quite brief with these last few points here, but let's just look briefly at point five, it, verses 30, 22, excuse me. So chapter 3, 22 through 25, calling Christ Lord looks like a free and a fearful servant. He, Paul devotes in this relationship, these relational commands, he devotes the most time to servants. Um, it seems backward that he's saying, instead of just saying, instead of having this be an emancipation proclamation, Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. Um, it looks repressive and backward, but it actually turns out to be quite revolutionary, quite the opposite. Um, this word bondservant is not the same as, as the African servants who were captured you know, and brought to the new world. So the slavery is a bit different. Sometimes it was so... Uh, there was such a good relationship between slaves and masters that the slave would actually choose, once his tenure was up, to stay in the family. Sometimes slaves were paid. Sometimes they were captured war criminals. Sometimes it was horrid. It, there was just a variety um, in the ancient Near East, and it was a, it was a normal institution. Um, but the, the fact that the most verbiage here by Paul is, is committed to, to slaves is a special encouragement to them. So he's encouraging slaves. He's telling them, look, you don't work first and foremost to your earthly master. The fact that he says, obey your earthly masters is an encouragement. Because what? It's, it's, it's implicit that they're not your only masters. And then he comes out and says that in the next verses. They're not your only masters. You have, they have, first of all, you have an, a master who's higher than they. And they will be accountable to that master. And he's the one you're working for. So all of a sudden, you're not working for this guy. He's actually not your boss. It's an it is emancipating. It's liberating. And all throughout this letter and in other letters, Paul says there's no longer a division anymore. Christ has dignified you. He's come for you. He's actually become a servant and a slave himself, this master of yours and of theirs. Master to the masters. They have a master too. And notice how the slaves are encouraged, but the word that's given to the masters is simply a warning. Don't you mistreat your slaves because you have a master too, and you will be held accountable for how you treat them and everyone else. So, all I was saying there, before I got sidetracked, is simply that in saying, masters, you have a master, or masters, you have a Lord, which is the title for Christ Jesus. That's the Greek. Masters, you have a Lord, Kyrios, Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that he became a slave Christ, God Almighty, became a human, and he took on the nature of a servant. He has a special love for the downtrodden, for the slave, for the servant, for the outcast. And he feels it keenly when they're mistreated. It's like touching Zechariah 2. It's like touching the pupil of God's eye when we touch the downtrodden in a way that doesn't dignify them. And that kind of truth that Paul is just sort of unfolding, it acts like yeast in a society as these relationships work in this way. Masters understand that they have a master who actually became a slave to set people free. And as slaves understand, they're not working for their earthly master first and foremost. They're working for God. And so it dignifies their work and it sets them free. It emancipates them relationally and emotionally. That's sort of, it's like a, instead of being like dynamite that blows up social bonds, it's like yeast. It works its way throughout a society, and eventually it's like a, it's like a root of a tree that, that quietly, that silently breaks through stone over the years. 
And actually what it ended up doing, rather than sending things into chaos, if Paul just said, all slaves free, go! It, it worked its way through the society so that in three centuries, slavery was abolished in the Roman Empire. Same thing happened in Britain. Largely through the work of one man, William Wilberforce, but he was a devoted Christian. And so it should work here with us, with our fight against slave trafficking, human trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, but this is the power of Christ transforming our relationships. And you know, verses 2 through 6 are beautiful. I'm not going to preach on them today, um, point 7. What I'll do is I'll loop, I'll loop back and I'll start the sermon next week with, with, uh, with verses 2 through 6 and we'll finish out the book. So let me, let me, close, let me close our time with a prayer. Father, I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you for being the God who, who changes our relationships, first to you and as a consequence to everybody else around us, Lord, even to the outsider, as Paul mentions in the bit of text I didn't get to, Lord, even to the outsider, um, to whom we are to be winsome and wise and inviting and responsive with Christ on our lips, Lord, but especially to this blood-bought family of ours. Um, Lord, through the blood of Christ shed for us and over us, cleansing us from all sin, make us, good Father, a submissive people, a loving people, an obedient people, a gentle people, a people who work for you and not for men, who know that we will give account of all that we do and say, of the way that we treat others, for you're a master in heaven, and you became a servant to set us free. May we be constant in prayer, always looking for opportunities to share the gospel, winsome and wise, surrounded by unbelievers, cultivating relationships with unbelievers, working hard to see them one to you, until you return, dear Lord, Christ our King. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.